welcome to The Check-In. My name is Jean-Marie Evely. I'm the Managing Editor at City Limits, and this is our weekly newsroom podcast where we catch you up on some of the reporting that we've been doing throughout the week. I'm joined today by City Limits Executive Editor Jarrett Murphy, who's going to talk to us about the reporting that he's been doing on the very crowded Manhattan District Attorney's race. Hi, Jarrett. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yes, so obviously uh, this is a one of the big races, um, probably right below sort of the mayoral race in terms of ones to watch next year. Um, tell us about uh, the race itself and what we know so far in terms of who's running. It's a pretty crowded uh, contest so far. It is, yeah. It's, I mean, the Manhattan DA's office is probably like the, the most prominent post in criminal justice in America, maybe a little bit less than you know, the U.S. Attorney General. Um, you know, that's been true for decades. Uh, you know, Thomas Dewey, who was the Manhattan DA, ran for president twice and almost almost won on the second occasion. Uh, and it's, you know, was held for a long time by Robert, Robert Morgenthau, who was kind of a legendary prosecutor. Obviously, anybody who has watched television in the past 30 years has probably not avoided seeing at least an episode or two of Law & Order or its various spinoffs. Those are all about the Manhattan DA's office, usually focusing on one of the executive ADAs. But um, it's a position of tremendous power. Um, and it really, for many years, operated kind of under the radar. I don't think people appreciated the amount of power it had. Um, it's only now, as we realize the influence that the criminal justice system has on society, on people's lives, on questions of racial justice, that it's become kind of more of uh, an object of electoral scrutiny. What's interesting is that a lot of DAs traditionally have served for a very long time. Morgenthau served for more than 20 years. Uh, so did uh, DA Hines in Brooklyn until he was ousted in 2013. DA Robert Johnson in the Bronx retired to become a judge in 2015. He'd been there for 20 years. Dick Brown in Queens, who um, was resigned and then died, uh, leaving that office vacant in 2019. He'd been there for a couple of decades. There was a little more turnover in Staten Island, but they've been there for quite some time. So you have this race for a very important office. It's technically a state office, so it happens at the same time as city elections in Brooklyn and Manhattan, but not in the other districts, just by happenstance of history. And what's interesting about that aspect of the race, I'll just mention, is that um, it, you know, we will not have any public financing. There are very few campaign finance restrictions. We're not going to have ranked choice voting. We're not going to have a runoff provision. And so with, I think at the moment, eight people running, um, it could be a very divided electorate. Someone could win with a relatively small share of the vote. Um, among the people running uh, so far anyway, you have uh, Tahani Abushi, who is a, a lawyer in private practice. You have Lucy Lang and Diana Florence, who uh, are people who used to work in the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, you have Alvin Bragg, who has uh, been an assistant to the state attorney general. Uh, you have uh, uh, Lisa Orleans, who's a public defender. Dan Quart, who's an assemblyman. Liz Crotty, who's a former uh, prosecutor, and also Tali Fahardi and Weinstein, who's a former uh, assistant DA in Brooklyn, I believe. So those are the people in the race now. The big question, of course, is whether there'll be another name in that mix. Cyrus Vance, who's the incumbent, he's held that office since 2010. One of the questions is whether he is going to run or not. He has not said. As time goes by, with him not running and not raising money, the suspicion is he will not, but there's been no definitive word on that yet. 
So as you said, a very crowded race, still waiting to see if Cy Vance is going to um, go for another term. And a lot of the candidates have sort of laid out some of their platforms so far. Um, and you've written about a few of these proposals, specifically about the ways that um, the different candidates are sort of reimagining what the role of the district attorney's office will play, particularly its relation to the NYPD. Um, that was a story that you had come out this week. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, if this race were run, you know, four years ago, eight years ago, a lot of the issues that you're seeing people talk about would not be discussed. You know, everyone has a very well-developed platform. Um, this is, I should say, obviously the most crowded field I've ever seen for a DA's race in the city. Um, people with very well-developed platforms on a few different issues. One issue that basically everyone talks about uh, is the question of policing, of police accountability, how to change the relationship between police and communities. And they've addressed that in a lot of different ways, talking about crimes they won't prosecute, talking about their approach to incarceration or alternatives to incarceration, approaches to bail, um, and especially now their approaches to the police department and working with the police department. And this is a very interesting and sensitive area because cops and DAs traditionally work uh, in very close cooperation. Cops are the ones who develop the cases, do the investigations, make the arrests that prosecutors in the DA's office then uh, prosecute. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's, it's been a fraught relationship in the past whenever cops have been accused of wrongdoing and then prosecuted by the same DA office. And so some of the candidates are talking about that. Um, really, all of them are to varying degrees of specificity. A few of the candidates, Alvin Bragg, Lucy Lane, Diana Florence, and most recently Tahani Abushi, have talked in detail about how they're going to handle police accountability. Uh, things like forming an independent unit within the DA's office that would only focus on police abuse cases. Um, those cases not handled by the state attorney general um, and would be independent, entering only to the DA themselves, uh, himself or herself on that. Um, also a unit in some cases deal with prosecutorial abuses, which has come up in a lot of the cases involving wrongful convictions in recent years that would find out if there had been a pattern there. Um, a lot of talk about data um, and then discussions too about what to do about police officers who are deemed to be not credible. This is another very touchy subject in some of the recent cases that have been exposed in the press, concerns about cops outright lying um, about their statements, about evidence they're presenting, and a lot of talk about what to do on that. In the most recent release plan from Tahani Abushi this week, uh, there was a discussion of a do not call list, basically a kind of blacklist, uh, for lack of a better term, for cops who are found to be not credible or found to have uh, a record of making racist statements or other forms of wrongdoing, that basically they would not be called as witnesses and essentially that the DA's office would not touch cases that those cops have been involved in. That's a pretty dramatic statement, a real departure from anything discussed in the past in the DA race. Yeah, and I, I believe um, that platform also included a discussion of what to do with um, cases that involve an officer who claims to be a victim of a crime on the job, right? So these kind of cases that we've seen, we saw a lot of them coming out of the Black Lives Matter protests, I think, some of these incidents of um, officers who say that they were assaulted um, by either protesters or somebody in the, you know, execution of policing. Um, and what does she say about that and how her um, office would handle those types of things? Yeah, a couple of different things. One is that if, a, if an officer or prosecutor is found to have been uh, wrong or, or not credible, um, different candidates have talked about different ways of approaching that. And a lot of them discuss 
going back through old cases to find out if there have been problems with other ones. So if a cop lies in a prosecution of an assault related to an, uh, a protest arrest in 2020, you know, looking at that as the impugning of the officer's larger credibility and then maybe going back to look at other cases. And one of the things that uh, Tahane Bushi said in her um, reaction to some of our questions about her plan this week is that they really don't know what the scale of that review would be. You know, some officers who've been active for 5, 10, 15, 20 years in some cases might have touched hundreds of cases that led to convictions and maybe even incarceration. Um, uh, and so that would be kind of a, a, tall, a tall order. One of the other issues that, as you mentioned, is when police officers claim to be the victims of abuse or resisting arrest, um, a lot of the candidates have cast some more skepticism on that because, as you mentioned, in some of the protests this summer, some of those claims were proven to be or indicated to be on very, very flimsy ground. Um, Abushi casts a very skeptical eye on those, suggesting that um, those cases would be reviewed very carefully. And if the police officer uh, instigates the encounter and someone is deemed to be acting in self-defense as they physically touch or harm the officer, that in those cases, perhaps charges would not be brought. That is obviously going to be a controversial idea among the police unions, a real break from, from the past, and really does seem to go farther than the other candidates in terms of really looking at um, the traditional benefit of the doubt given to police officers and whether that is warranted or not. Um, Mabushi and some of the other candidates too would really put that on uh, much, much thinner ground than it's ever been on before. Yeah, and so in addition to obviously the relationship with the police department, um, you've highlighted through some of your other stories, um, some of the other sort of um, policy focuses that a few of the candidates have laid out. Maybe you could briefly tell us about some of those and sort of what's um, kind of been highlighted by these candidates so far. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, as the campaign has gone on, um, you know, some of the candidates do not say that much about the details of their policy. Um, Dan Court, Liz Crotty, uh, uh, Elisa Orleans talk, at least on their websites, in, in broad strokes. It's worth noting that there have been a lot of forums and debates already in this race where people have had a chance to expand on that more fully. But in terms of what's available to the public on a, at the click of a button, uh, some speak in, in much more uh, brief tones, terms. Um, but a few candidates have issued detailed policies in a couple of different areas. Um, Diana Florence, early in the campaign, talked about using the powers of the office as a tool for affordable housing, essentially by going after landlords who have systematically tried to gain the rent regulation system or the tax system. That's an interesting idea. Lucy Lang has talked about using the office to more aggressively pursue elder abuse and scams that target the elderly a lot of which has come up um, as a post-COVID-19 problem or a mid-COVID-19 problem. Um, discussions about what to do about wage theft is something that a few candidates, Diana Florence and Alvin Bragg among them, have talked about. And that's really an interesting twist in the, in the, the race and just the whole landscape of criminal justice in the city is that on the one hand, there is a move away from traditional policing as it's been done over the past 20, 30, 40 years in New York, away from quality of life offenses, away from prison being the first um, resort in a lot of cases, and really kind of reducing the intrusion of law enforcement into people's lives on one hand. And then the other, people seized with some of the uh, fervor around social justice in New York City around affordability, inequality, have looked to using the tools of the DA's office to explore areas where 
either the DA has had limited impact or uh, no impact at all in recent years, using the office's powers, the prosecutor's powers to pursue affordable housing, um, to more aggressively go after wage theft, which has been part of the portfolio for a while, but traditionally handled more uh, heavily at the state level, to focus on specific problems like elder abuse, that kind of an activist approach paired with a reduced approach when it comes to traditional crimes is a really interesting mix that a lot of the candidates, not all of them, but a lot of them are embracing. Great, wow. So we will definitely be continuing to cover that race in the lead up to the primary in June. Um, and thank you so much, Jarrett, for um, giving us the rundown so far. It was a pleasure. Once again, um, thanks for tuning in. This was The Check-In. This is our weekly newsroom podcast, and that was executive editor Jarrett Murphy um, talking about the Manhattan DA race that's coming up in the next few months. I'm Jean Marie Evely, managing editor here at City Limits. Um, you can join us next week with another episode and check citylimits.org for all of our coverage about elections and beyond. Thanks so much.